0: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and I'm here today with Carlito Marx on my T-shirt. But also, there's another very special guest, and that is... Tana Rulis. So, Tana, thank you so much for joining us here in the pod, along with Chinguri Naranja, the podcat, and Carlito on my T-shirt. But you're actually the really special guest today, partly because you can speak, unlike the T-shirt and the pussycat, but also because your work is so valuable and so rich. Having said that, having compared you to a a person who died, you know, 150 years ago and a one and a bit year old hat, in all seriousness, what are you thinking about today? What's going through your mind? What's dynamizing you? What's interesting you? What's concerning you? Prof Tan, if I may.
1: Well, thank you so much, Prof Miller. Toby, I am just so happy to be here to have this chat with you today. Um, it's it's a real privilege. I I kind of grew up sort of reading so many of your works and have been so foundational to many of the things I've done over the past decade. So I just want to thank you uh, for all of that. Um, I really like your T-shirt. Yeah, the the, the question of uh, class dismissed. I mean, it's an assertion. It seems with a Karl Marx kind of uh, you know headshot, wearing some cool Ray-Ban sunglasses. Um, <laughs> I think a lot about whether or not class has been dismissed, both in I think the cultural studies tradition and perhaps also in some contemporary variants of of progressive politics. But maybe we could get back to that in a little bit. Um, a few other things. I mean, I'm thinking about a lot of things. Top of mind, I was out for a walk. Um, about an hour ago it's a chilly Mm -hmm. minus 10 uh afternoon in toronto ontario canada um i was walking down blur street and i saw um a message on a poster and the poster declared um home of the spicy juicy revolution i was like "Mm, that sounds good spicy juicy revolution Mm, let's Mm -hmm. check it out i mean surprise surprise it was a poster calling for anything but a revolution it was calling me to buy a cheeseburger um <laughs> <laughs> i i was thinking it might have been
0: you know a juice uh, of some kind but it's not even that it's just
1: repulsive animal food yeah so- I know, I know, sort of mass industrial scale manufacturing and slaughter, anything yeah. but revolutionary. Um, yeah. You know, I, I perhaps prefer like a long and slow revolution over to a quick and cheap cheeseburger, of course. But <laughs> but I mean, it's just got me thinking like, like, what is the currency of revolution, you know, yeah. as a concept, as a slogan that's being used from by everyone from the, yeah, like burger restaurants to Silicon Valley, you know, mm. shilling new gadgets that again, just reproduce the relations of production and exploitation. I mean, what do we make of these popular expressions of, of revolution? How does that term mean at the cultural level in 2024? I mean, I'm thinking back to Thomas Frank's book, The Commodification of Descent De- De- or Commodifier Descent, which was like a collection of some of the articles published in the Bath- Baffler. But also was speaking to the 60s, right? How with the sort of new left and the counterculture and many of the protest actions of that era, um, revolution um, didn't necessarily follow, right, the new left. But it was actually intertwined with what the cultural industries were, were doing and how they were advertising goods and services. And so I sort of wonder, you know, now in 2024, what does revolution mean to people? How would we sort of decode that at a cultural level? Would mm-hmm. you talk about it as like different articulations of revolution that get mobilized by different organizations or actors for ends that might in some cases be revolutionary, but in a lot of other ones be quite compliant or in conformity with the status quo? So how do you think about revolution today? That's what's on my mind, top of my right. mind, I guess. My,
0: minus 10 degrees revolution. Yes. I, I think it may relate in some ways to another favored term of incredibly wealthy, powerful people operating from newish corners of capital, namely disruption and being Mm. a disruptor. Uh, This sort of nonsense is uh, used all the time to indicate that there is a renewal of capitalism from within, that every crisis of overproduction and exploitation and destruction is okay because there will be a correction by the emergence of new disruptive forces that sometimes are compared to revolutionary ones. But of course, this can never be about politics. It can certainly never be about democracy. Uh, And I think what you allude to is the way in which so many great spectacular movements and slogans have been co-opted, governmentalized, and commodified. So I you know I I read today a newspaper piece that to be buried next to Marx in Highgate Cemetery in North London you have to pay several thousand pounds more than you would to be buried in the average cemetery in Britain and of course you can buy a lifetime membership of granting you access to the area of the tomb at the time of your choosing. So uh, This is not to say that there is no point to transformative change. It's just to say that there is very clearly this element of the appropriation of progressive ideas in the interests of capital. And you can see that with all kinds of the politics of spectacle and not only by capital, but by the right. Um, So much of right wing politics is now not about law and order, which they tend to hate, other than in the embodiment of the police and the military. You know, they hate the courts, they hate judges, they hate the vaguely democratic parts of law and order, but also in the uptake of the politics of spectacle. And it seems to me that going back to January 6, 2021, in the United States, apart from anything else, that's leftist spectacle being appropriated by the right. And you can see the same all over populist movements in Europe. You can see it in Canada too. So I, I do think that you're onto something when you walk on your maniacal, self-denying <laughs> stroll in minus 10 and you encounter that and it makes you think.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely correct about the appropriation of the spectacle by the far right in a lot of its kind of street politics, but then also, of course, in what it is doing online to try to organize people's affect and consent to Uh, quite atrocious um, conspiracy theories and and also very hateful, destructive politics. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that with you shortly, but I also want to circle back to that concept of disruption because it, it feels to me that the people that are speaking about disruption, again, are one presenting that as a good thing. Disruption is always already good. It is going to be disruption for the better there's an existing structure, a set of organizations or institutions, a regime, a governmentality, an old way of doing things that's in place. And we want to overturn it. And when we overturn it, it's going to be a better and different society. And the, the the sort of falsity of that claim, for me at least, is that, well there's not much that is bad necessarily that is being disrupted. So if I say, for example, well, let's disrupt the remnants of a social democratic welfare state and then privatize and commercialize everything with algorithms or apps that will allow the consumer to efficiently access uh, health care that now costs 27 times more than what a public service could have provisioned. That's a disruption, but it's certainly not a disruption for the better or for most people. But a lot of the people that are talking about disruption in this way always sort of frame this in a kind of techno-optimist kind of, you know, uh, uh, framework. And, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that. I mean, maybe there are instances of disruption for the better. But what what do you think? Like, is, is this just a slogan, I mean, used by finance capital and Silicon Valley startups to you know, turn a profit? Or or are there examples of disruption that we've experienced over the past 20, 30 years or so um, that have been positive? Uh,
0: Of the kind that they're describing, I think there's nothing positive about it. And, of course, the classic moment for them is justifying the global financial crisis in terms of a necessary market correction through the disruption of a sort of decadent form of capital. But, of course, in their eyes, the decadent form of capital is that inhabited by and allegedly created by the working class uh, in Southern California in particular, accepting the defrayment, is that the word, defrail? Anyway, the deferment, let's say, in perpetuity of wage rises in line with their increased productivity by taking out absurd treble mortgages on home improvements that supposedly would eventually bring them not only a nice place to live, but a kind of financial nirvana when they cashed in. And so, you know, on the one hand, that was a necessary correction because of a problem with the ready availability of cash. And on the other hand, it was a smashing of working class desire and aspiration. And that sort of disruption these people that we're talking about love. The same with the technologists. So their argument is, you know, we have overcome the world of the material by bringing in the desideratum of the immaterial world. Uh, And the only way of seeing that as, in any sense, positively disruptive would allegedly be that it gives people greater pleasure. It makes for, you know, more efficient and effective forms of, production in the interests of ordinary people, and it is environmentally less destructive than is the case with the extractive or manufacturing sectors. All of those things are manifestly untrue, but they are the things that are, that are claimed. And I guess the other thing that happens with the claim of disruption is that it is overstretched anyway. So if you look at who's in the motion picture Association the big peak body that represents the Hollywood studios, it's virtually exactly the same people, or studios at least, as a century ago, with the exception, of course, of Netflix. And if you look at the uh, major entities that are controlling the so-called social media, with one or two exceptions, they're the same that we've seen for 10 and 15 years and if you look at the major software companies, it's the same. So the disruption in terms of the entry of those players into market politics is about fractions of capital engaging in conflict over intellectual property. And that's being played out really interestingly at the moment with artificial intelligence in terms of struggles over intellectual property that see traditional intellectual property holders not wanting a repetition of what happens to them when Google et al. came along, and so saying, we believe in regulation, and some of the mm, players like Microsoft that have major pecuniary interests in these new developments saying, we want regulation too, because they've got these ideas, they've got these trademarks, these copyrights, and goddammit, they want to enjoy them all the way to the bank and back. So, We're seeing, uh, I think, the exposure of the fallacy of the idea of disruptiveness in terms of the circuits of power that continue to be ramified, uh, even as we're constantly seeing, darling, please don't do that. Um, When he puts his paw on the glass of wine, that's a problem. When he puts his forepaws and his jaws around my elbow, it's mildly annoying.
1: So, it's, a, it's a sweet kiss with some teeth. Right.
0: Thirsty, darling. Anyway, sorry for the lengthy feline-style answer, prof, but that's how I see it. In Canada, for example, many of us think of this, as you know, in terms of all sorts of cliches, myths, shibboleths, of it, in a sense of being the nice version of the United States. Right. Sophisticated people more than in the United States. Relatively gentle, thoughtful, innovative, but not vicious. And then, of course, we confront things like hockey. You know, I I recorded a a podcast with Rick Grunow the other night, and some of his stories about Canadian masculinity would make anybody's hair, if they had a bit or not much, stand on end. So I'm interested in... How you would see this in the Canadian context, which is only one of the ones in which you work, in terms of on the one hand traditional ideas of prairie masculinity, pioneer masculinity, and whiteness uh, versus the idea of Canada as you know obviously many other things, but amongst those other things a technologically advanced country. Mm. I mean I, I I
1: I of course can't speak for the nation, although Canada is sort of sort of sometimes spoken for um, you know, as a unity by some of the Uh, professors that are are part of the communication and media studies field. And that's kind of also been a long tradition, right, in Canadian communication and cultural studies. The the question of nation, uh, who we are, who we are not, what is this particular role of technology and media in building or connecting the disparate elements together into some unity that would then differentiate us, one from the British and then, of course, from the Americans. So this was a, a constant anxiety sort of going back to Innes and then McLuhan, um, and very much carried through the long tradition of Canadian communication and cultural policymaking, where one of the, the, the sort of significant justifications, right, was, was nation building. That was what nation cultural industries building. Um, and and now it's it's not really sure what there's many different sort of justifications being mobilized by by, by state uh, ministries and bureaucracies, but um creativitys made its way into uh the discourse probably about two decades after it did in the UK um but the question of masculinity then that that is a really 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 interesting one and and one that i've been actually thinking more and more about um uh, over the past little while um i can think back to sort of my my i grew up in actually quite a a very small town of 15,000 people Um, I was not cosmopolitan whatsoever. Uh, I'm a first-generation university student. Um, My uh, mother was sort of a technician in the local hospital. Um, And so... I I sort of lacked growing up, I think, what we would call in a reduced sense, cultural capital and much of sort of the socialization process into sort of even the networks of, say, even like CBC world, like the good sort of liberal liberalism of like the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation or the cultural apparatuses of the, you know, Department of Heritage. You know, this was something that was not really introduced to me at a young age. What was the name of the guy who used to read The National each night? Peter Mansbridge. Peter Mansbridge, he was not part of your formation. (laughs) Definitely not. Part of my formation was Fox News being broadcast across the border from Buffalo stations in Buffalo, New York State. Right. So that was really part of my cultural formation coming of age. So, you know, I'm thinking about like the 80s, early 90s. It was um, it was American television Um, and it was American television from which I derived a sense of what it was or. You know, it was supposed to be masculine versus feminine and the appropriate codes of conduct for sort of being male. Now, those very much did intersect with, you know, local, regional kind of configurations of, of yes, hockey culture. Um, you know, my, my dear departed dad was a junior B hockey player. Uh, hockey was a major part of his life, both as a player and also as a fan. Um, And to be a man in that context was to do things like, yes, uh, be kind of like Don Cherry, you know, you're kind of loudmouth, you're kind of uh, very skeptical and suspicious of abstraction. Uh, There's a sense of just doing what you got to do and not thinking much about it. There's a kind of aggressiveness that's sort of tied to masculinity um there's violence of course um I mean thinking back to of course Don Cherry even when um there are discussions around helmets for example or even sort of not fighting on on the you know he was appalled by this and it was a big reaction for many many men many conservative men in Canada especially like we want to see the brawl you know was often right and
0: the the mandatory use of helmets in the National Hockey League when it was introduced had a grandparenting dispensation didn't it such that people who had played in the era when you didn't have to wear one could continue to be without one. So there was a sort of bifurcation of the real pioneering figure of pro hockey versus the wuss. And what Rick said the other night is that the wuss, in inverted commas, is probably foreign. So he might be Russian or Finnish or Swedish or
1: whatever and not, you know, a knuck, damn it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think what we're noticing nowadays in Canada is that, you know, new forms of masculinity being articulated to things like the carbon industries, you know, um, oil, coal, gas, you know, which are very much central to Canada's extractive uh, economy. And it has been for some time, um, particularly stemming from Alberta, which is the center of the tar sands and every sort of move to try to rein in carbon emissions or even regulate what those industries and sectors are doing. Which of course are contributing to the catastrophe of global climate change as we know it in the Anthropocene or capitalist scene or whatnot, um, are are sort of being rendered feminized. So it's kind of like real tough men in Canada drive big trucks, you know, roll coal coal out of sort of, you know, the, the back. Um, people that are into electric vehicles, hybrid vehicles are again being framed by the conservative sort of petrol lobby and attendant parties and politicians in a more feminized way as compared to real men that are invested in oil and um, need to sort of reproduce the conditions for extraction and refining oil for Canada and for the traditional man and for uh, the family unit that they are essentially positioned at the helm or head of. So there's this sort of reinvention of masculinity as articulated to petrol and oil and carbon. Uh, which is interesting. Then you've got an intersection of that with sport um, and hockey being, you know, uh, in particular, um, the the main sport that still sort of plays out dramas and performances of masculinity. And then also um, there's kind of like this kind of strange, I'd say, like fantasy of nature or wilderness. Um, I mean, the fact is people are buying very large trucks and The advertising for trucks in Canada by the subsidiaries of American auto manufacturers like GM or whatnot um, will often present a Canadianized advertisement that shows a man in a plaid shirt, you know, driving a truck up a very, very, uh, you know, tumultuous mountain cliff or something. When most people are driving their uh, trucks to Costco or Walmart, you know, (laughs) in minus ten degrees. In
0: minus ten. It's worth noting for those who are not from the North American area. Region that most Canadians, not all by any means, but most Canadians, especially
1: white Canadians, live within 50 miles of the United States. Yes. We're very much a border country, right? And we're completely integrated economically, uh, even geopolitically at the security level. Um, And of course, the longstanding issue of just the, the cultural or media integration and then what that means for a distinctive or differentiated national polity. Uh, where we can uh, be different, but at the same time also similar, but not too similar, because when we're too similar, we don't know who we are. (laughs) So these are kind of often um, some of the operative myths in the narratives of nation in Canada, um, and as they also get played out in media and cultural policy communities and formations, um, which is again provided a necessary counterbalance to you know, the total kind of ownership and control of the Canadian communication infrastructure and superstructure by U.S.-based megacorporations like Walt Disney and Google. Um, But they don't necessarily always, beyond carving out a space where workers and companies that employ workers in Canada um, do sort of utilize that space to create perhaps countervailing narratives or stories some of them can be sort of in a, you know, flagging the geographical or cultural particularism, or regional particularism, or maybe even uh, metropolitan particularism of the thing we called Canada. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the policy frameworks have also historically propped up a very oligopolistic telecommunications media system in Canada too, uh, where um, you have large conglomerates um, that are backed by arguments about national defense and protection that, you know, kind of (laughs) offer pretty uncompetitive prices to consumers and also exploit workers and then sometimes spend much of the revenue on just acquiring American television shows anyway. So there's contradictions here. You know, this is kind of a formation that we kind of love and hate all at the same time. We don't want to get rid of it. At least people like me don't, but we also want to reform and modify it, perhaps. I mean, And this is
0: always the problem, isn't it, with cultural nationalism? Whose culture, whose nation? Yes. Well, I-, I wondered if I could um, touch on a couple of themes that you've mentioned when you were chatting about masculinity. One is the environment and the other is labor. So on the environment issue, if I could go to that first, I've read that you're part of the uh, Petro Cultures Research enterprise could you tell us a bit about what you dudes are up to what is that i mean what the fuck Petrocultures? what are they is that saudi arabia how could that be the tar mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. mm, no, great question i mean this, this is something i, I just joined about um, a year ago and, and and very happily so um one of one of my my colleagues uh, and, and and recent collaborators locally is uh Zeman, who formed the, the Petrocultures research group um, in relation to energy humanities is kind of a cluster of, of research.
0: That, energy um, humanities, that's a term I haven't
1: heard. Wow. Okay. Yeah, no, ch- check into it. It really, it really connects with uh, a lot of the excellent work that um, you and, and, and Rick sort of been doing for some time on greening the media and greenwashing culture and also more broadly environmental communication and cultural studies. Um, but, uh, you know, petrocultures, I think is, is not just a specific Canadian formation, even though it really does speak to some of the particularities of the culture of petro in Canada, which is trying to understand the centrality and significance of, of oil um, to the shaping and reshaping of the economy, the state, uh, normative and dominant ways of life in Canada, uh, both at the national scale and also regionally and provincially in the case of Alberta. So, you know, how has kind of, you know, the Uh, extraction, production, refinement, and sale of oil uh, over time in this particular national state context and then internationally as well, um, just driven kind of, you know, industrial capitalism, uh, driven sort of the prerogatives or uh, priorities of state and governance. Uh, How is that intersected with consumer culture? And I think that by revealing the intersection of petrol and oil, uh, with sort of modernity and capitalist modernity, we then can have uh, new conversations um, about why we need to transition away from that resource and move to renewables so that, that for me like i 'm in no way an expert in <laughs> in energy humanities or petrocultural research, environmental studies media, but that 's my general sense of like the ethical political thrust of that formation mm-hmm. uh, at the present, at the present time.
0: It sounds very exciting i 'd read about some of it, but only a bit and on the issue of labor this is definitely one of the things that you've written quite a lot about and it's something that often gets displaced within political economy because of political economy's emphasis frequently on structures the domination of corporations the domination of states forgetting its marxist origins in conflict forgetting the big man in the ray-bans and Uh, becoming a kind of leftist functionalism because labor becomes a cipher or not the element of agency and drive that it used to be in the Marxist idiom. At the same time as it's pretty clear that notions of the working class have fortunately changed as we think more about the informal sector, we think more about female labor, both unpaid and informally remunerated, and migrant labor, and move away from what was the Marxist propulsion, namely the industrial proletariat, often identified in uh, Canada and the U.S., but many other countries too, as the white male proletarian subject. So, could you, after that long prologue, and could you perhaps give us your take on where labor is? Right now, big question, but perhaps specifically in the fields of communication and culture.
1: Sure. Um, Well, I think the class was dismissed in sort of, you know, old school sort of Marxian labor terms for such a a long time in communication and media cultural studies. Um, You know, of course, um, you know, Richard Maxwell in cultural works, I think, around 2001 was talking about the necessity to bring labor back in. Uh, everything that you did around Global Hollywood was talking with the new international division of labor, um, needing to study that. Uh, 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 it, it, Vincent Moscow, for example, kind of announced a, the sort of labor turn or sort of a return to labor after a work with um, Janet Wasco, I think, in 1983 um, on the laboring of communication and then sort of reviv- revivified that idea around 2010-ish or so, I think, right, in a few articles um, and books. And subsequent to that, I think that the labor turn has actually been followed by uh, one or two generations of new common media and cultural studies scholars in very interesting ways. Um, Because now I sort of go to sort of like a conference, whether that be sort of like, you know, IMCR ICA or CCA in the Canadian case. And so many graduate students seem to be fixated on labor more than ever, more than I ever experienced when I was a graduate student, which is very, very interesting. Um, I remember when I was doing my graduate studies class was dismissed completely and labor especially to talk about the study of like work and occupation and stratification and employer employee relationships and unions seemed to be things that were just not top of mind for at least the generation of common media study scholars that I came of age with but I think we've seen a bit of a a, a return and an expansion uh, over the past decade or so that being said. I think that maybe when some folks hear the word worker, they still unfortunately imagine or visualize a like late 19th century, early 20th century industrial proletariat, you know, uh, working for a wage on a highly tailorized, routinized, and standardized assembly line. That sort of person is white, is male, uh, and you know, I just think that what we need to really sort of disarticulate worker from those connotations and rearticulate worker to connotations that better reflect the ex- actually existing working class um, that is intersectional and always has been, for example. I think like there's like a, a myth of the white worker that might have been operating within the imaginary of media comm cultural study scholars that people felt a little bit uncomfortable talking about the worker when it only sort of addressed or uh, connoted like the white working proletariat male because that was an exclusionary category that was never inclusive of the heterogeneity and diversity of working people inside and outside the communication and media sectors and industries and within the broader sort of sectors of the economy as a whole uh, in North America and around the world. So it's like, I think the starting point, if we're going to postulate something, is that working class has always already been intersectional. (laughs) It's never just been the white man. Subject, you know, as of history maker, even though in in, in Marx's time, right? And then in, in sort of talking about the working class as the agent of history and the agent that needed to be organized either by itself through a project of self-emancipation or by a revolutionary vanguard in Lenin a sense, of course, the working class was frequently addressed and imagined in those very circumscribed and limited terms, you know, gendered in a specific way, racialized in a specific way. Um but when we start at the same time, Toby, I don't know, if we are good sort of like say historical materialists and we wanna like study the history say of international socialism, we would go back to the 19th century and would see how many of the organizers of unions of, of, of revolutionary social movements weren't talking about the working class in an exclusionary white male centric way. They were organizing many, many people. So within that tradition itself. So I think something happened whereby an, an academe, right? a certain notion of the working class was mobilized or was animating the imaginary working class politics and research, which normally, you know, made people feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I think what we've, we've learned now if we study history and look at the working class today, um, it's intersectional and always already has been. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, uh,
0: minor footnotes for people acronyms mentioned CCA, the Canadian communication association, IMCR, which used to be the KGB Recruiting Centre, International Association, Mm -hmm. used to be called for Mass communication Research, now Media and Communication Research, and ICA, which used to be the Recruiting Centre, the CIA, and still is, International Communication Association. These are peak bodies of scholars uh, and their, their relevance. I think another factor in terms of academic issues is that There was a tension, and perhaps you experienced this in grad school, in which people invested in political economy would often poo-poo what they regarded as identity politics in terms of the material and materialist struggles of women, sexual minorities, inverted commas, and people of colour, because these were seen as uh, deflecting from the principal task of academic life. And... The political economy, as part of its leftist functionalism, also tended in some cases, and we're not talking about a vast number of people, to be dismissive of the new social movements in terms of environmentalism, gender, sexuality, and race, and to say, look, when the revolution comes, everything else will be fine. Now, that's a stereotype on my part, but there were people running those sorts of lines. And on the other side, there were some folks invested in lots of the cultural politics that mean a lot to me, (coughs) pardon me, who dismissed political economy. And the term used in those days was not functionalist Marxism or leftism, which is my denunciatory term, although I didn't invent it, but rather the notion was that uh, this was, in a sense, as I said, deflecting from the real issues and was in inverted commas identity politics and missing out on uh things like the real structures of power now it seems to me that what we're seeing today is a recognition that was always there on the part of feminists and people of color that structures of power matter a heck of a lot they know that better than do i i mean my mother left school at 13 and never went back But my father was from the lower middle class and went to college. You know, so I grew up in what was a had been a shifting class situation from just about lower middle class slash working class into comfortably middle class when I was born. Uh, But that sort of formation is. Decreasingly common. And not only for white men, but for many others as well. And that's why we're seeing in the United States more and more people who have degrees joining the union movement. Uh, that's why we're seeing a transformation of the union movement to include and be influenced by the informal sector and essentially unwaged labor like that of many women in caretaking situations, not only for children and husbands, but also for parents and grandparents, and so on. And so I see a recognition academically and industrially of the importance of these categories. And that includes, as you say, an historical revisionism to say, this should not be seen as something new. This was always the case. Uh, If you go back to some of the most important elements in New York City organizing, they're about the seamstresses and the Triangle Fire, uh, which occurred in the block in the building where I used to live, although, thankfully for me, many years before. And uh, similarly, when we start to talk about wage labor, we cannot do that. And we cannot think about capital without considering slavery. And it's immense unpaid contribution to capitalism as well as colonialism. I mean, when people go on and on about the Industrial Revolution in Britain, social historians, political economists, and neoclassical ones as well, they will never acknowledge this was a pissy, pitiful little nothing of a country. Not until it developed all these wonderful things like the steam engine, but until it got control of slavery and made vast amounts of money as a consequence of enslaved, kidnapped, tortured, unpaid labour. And that's something that the British have never accepted and probably never will. Here in Spain, they haven't. In Portugal, they haven't. None of these countries will really grasp the nettle of what they did and how their economies, whether they were for some time decadent, like the Spanish and the Portuguese, for a little while were not, like the British Artly reliant on this exploitation of the other. So I do think that what you're talking about, namely this intersectional encrustation of labor, is absolutely spot on. And it's great that finally we're getting something more of an amalgam between the radical wing of the study of communications and the radical wing of culture by bringing together, to the extent these things are compatible, the interests of different fractions of oppressed classes, both internationally and nationally. That was a very long answer. I, I want to get back to your work, if, if I could.
1: Um, but may I interject one, one more point? Yeah, there, sure. I absolutely agree with you. And I also share your enthusiasm about the recognition and the reckoning that's happened in this regard, um, you, you know, when, when broadening and expanding the concept of, of working class, even though, again, the working class was always already these things, you know, paid, unpaid, forced, coerced, you know, um, so many modalities of relations of exploitation and oppression uh, to produce the very world that we know it. the empires that have risen and fallen, the cities that sort of, you know, go to boom, to bust. Um, it's, it's the labor of, of the working class and all of its sort of complexity um, that, that has driven uh, these, these transformations. Um, and, and and I think today, I mean, like you said, it's not just a historical issue. And again, it's, it's one that you say colleagues have never really, or not even colleagues, but in the context of, of Britain would never speak about slave labor, right, as, as something central to capitalism or unpaid reproductive or care or household labor as central to capitalism, yeah, yeah. Um, not just sort of peripheral. Um, and, and nowadays, I think those debates are playing out and, and, and these concepts are still or maybe being utilized more than ever, which is a really good thing. I mean... Uh, we can talk about forced labor uh, to extract the minerals that go into the gadgets, right, that we use right now. Um, we can talk about all of, and you still have this double sort of shift that's sounds strangely expected of, of of women working in sort of two income households, which is very strange. So re- who, do, who does the reproductive labor of the household, right? Yeah. And and why is that sort of gender stereotype of 100 years ago or 80 years ago still being uh, reproduced? Um, sorry, that was just an aside.
0: No, 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 I appreciate it. I'm just filling up my glass. One of the nice things about being in Spain while I'm chatting with people in North America is that they have to have tea and coffee and water, otherwise they're daytime drunks, whereas I'm allowed to have two or three glasses of wine because it's post like, say after dinner. No, Prof, what I wanted to do now, if we could, in these last few minutes available to us, is turn to your work. And, you know, we, we talked about labor issues, which you've covered extensively, but also the idea of media or cultural imperialism. Mm. Uh, and you've done work extensively on this. You've edited books, written books, etc. And this was a concept that we were told was dead and buried, outmoded, silly, if it ever applied. I think you've resuscitated it. In a different form. Could you talk a bit about that tradition, what the critiques have been and where you see it as heading today? Sure. I think that it's important to historicize all of the concepts that we use in the present and
1: also to reflect upon the the possibilities and limits of those concepts, both in analytical research terms, but also in concrete political terms. Um, And that's why sometimes I feel a bit ambivalent about what I've done with that concept for the past two decades or so. Uh, but I'll get to that in a moment. So, you know, the story of cultural imperialism, you know, starts with the national liberation struggles in the global South um, against one, the traditional colonial territorial empires of the West, you know, France, Great Britain, Portugal, others. And then also becomes used as a way to uh, address the neocolonial or new imperial relations that are being forged uh, between post colonial countries that have freed themselves from the fetters of the old Western colonial regimes with a bit of a hangover of those apparatuses still, and then the new emerging uh, American empire, which um, I hope that we can now take as a historical and social fact and not something that's just a slogan or something to be denied, Um, because I think that the denial of empire has been a consistent component of uh, much of historically American historiography, and unfortunately, communications and media studies to some extent, whereby scholars would look at what, you know, Herb Schiller uh, was writing about in 1969 or 1973 or 1991 or 2001, and just say that's just like a curmudgeonly crank Marxist term, you know. Empire imperialism, we don't live in a world of empires and imperialism. We live in a new world of globalization or complex interdependency and time-space differentiation or new sort of, you know, hybrid sort of exchanges between post-national configurations that at once exist above the territorial borders and sovereign regulatory and governmental regimes of states, but also below them and all these kinds of formations. Now, of course, community and cultural identity um, is not contained by any one nation state or territory. And there are definitely fusions and hybridizations and forms that exceed um, and extend in all kinds of directions. But to say that the nation state disappeared, uh, I think was one of the biggest errors of a lot of work being done in the 90s. I think it was more of a hope. And it was a good hope. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we could move away from this Westphalian system of strange compartmentalizations of economies and cultures and polities and peoples and bodies within these borders? Like it's it's not been a very, you know good formation on the whole in terms of uh, uh, universal human emancipation. But, But that's kind of the unfortunate structures of the world we live in. So I think the thrust of a lot of globalization theory in the 90s at the end of the Cold War with the collapse of the Soviet Union was very optimistic and maybe trying to think through how we could build a different type of world order that would be capable of solving the problems of the planet outside of just a nation-state framework. And I think that thrust and that ethos is still absolutely essential. The problem, however, is that I think in theory, people moved beyond the nation-state and the history of a hierarchical nation-state system of you know, empires and middle-tier powers and then sort of you know, countries that were more subordinated or dominated or exploited by those or at least the working classes in those countries to this kind of imagined kind of world that went beyond all of that. And the work that I was trying to do, um, or started trying to do, in the aftermath of the terrorist act of 9-11, and the Bush administration's declaration of global war on terror, and the subsequent multi-fronts of wars that that, that have happened since then, um, was to think seriously through this concept of empire and imperialism, um, and to learn from what political economists of communication um, were writing about in the 60s and 70s. And so I went back and I read everything that Herbert Schiller wrote, or at least all of the major books, and I said, you know, what what can be taken from this? Uh, what can be learned from this? Uh, how can we also adapt and refine this for the contemporary era? And how can we also maybe synthesize some of the newer theories of empire and imperialism from Scholars like the you know departed dear departed Leo Panitch, um, who authored a book on the making of global capitalism with Sam Gindin, or David Harvey, you know, writing about the new imperialism, and many other scholars in that in that context. And so I, I sort of you know in reading history, I, um, I, I I just needed to start with the the, the postulate that history is very much um, shaped significantly by the rise, maintenance, and fall of empires. Um, empires have always already historically driven and often utilized new developments in communication technology and media for ends related to economic expansion, to ends related to you know geopolitics, governance, public diplomacy, propaganda, um, and for also sort of ends related to building imperial cultures that socialize citizen subjects into a certain way of perceiving themselves and others in relation to. Some exceptional position um, in world history. And so I, I just, you know, I, I, I learned so much from the political economy of communication tradition in that regard. And I learned very much also from historians of US foreign policy. Um, and I hope that the contribution that that I've made to that discussion is just to take empire seriously and, and not to sort of overreach with a theory that either denies empire or just complicates it away to nothingness. Because I think it is a major historical and social fact. And to understand the history of communications, technology and media, we have to also understand the intertwining of those forms with the history of empires. Um, and I'm interested in that as a historical uh, you know, uh, question. Um, But it also has great political implications as well. Um, As of late, I think I'm getting into some trouble because I'm trying to think through the dynamics of economic and geopolitical competition and conflict between the U.S. and China. And I'm thinking through China as a potential new media or technological imperial power, not a power that in any way is on equal structural footing as the U.S. vis-a-vis other countries. Not in any way as belligerent, as a military power, as the U.S. has demonstrated itself to be uh, since uh, the post sort of World War II era forward, continuing with wars. Um, But I do think that China is a rising power. And if our starting point for thinking through history and history of communications is that empires or superpowers or hegemons play a very substantial role um, in driving these developments and utilizing them for their own ends, I do think that we need to start taking the rise of China seriously. And it's an uncomfortable thing to do. It's an uncomfortable thing to do because of the vast ubiquitous xenophobia um, that is permeating the culture of of the US right now. And it is um, also something that a progressive will feel anxious about doing because they often then will see neoconservatives making similar arguments, even though they're politically different if you know what I mean. No, sure. And I think you're making an important point. I've got a
0: little capsule account of this, which is the essential difference between, on the one hand, Spanish and Portuguese imperialism, and on the other, British, Dutch, French, Belgian, German, Italian, is that the sexual policies, the gender policies of the Spanish and the Portuguese were quite different. They didn't bring their women in multiple inverted commas with them. So rape, but also agreed into marriage became the norm, and hence you get the mixedness of populations in Latin America But you don't get with these later European empires, which were about colonial possession and certainly did involve rape, but didn't involve much into marriage because white women travelled with them. Now, it's a generalisation, but it's roughly true as a distinction. And the idea with both these empire systems, imperial systems, regardless of their gender policies of colonization, was to conquer, control, exploit, and reside. The difference with the US model is that whilst it's involved some of those things, it emerged in a way that wasn't really about full time colonial occupation. It was about military occupation to facilitate the interests of capital. The Chinese learned from the folly of the decadence of the European models, have picked up on the Yankee model and have, in a sense, refined it further in order to be uh, a mixture of a military presence, but not like the United States. And not a donor, but a business partner. So they've got the neoliberal claptrap in their claws in a way that the U.S. never did. Now, the, the problem for Chinese imperialism, colonialism, is that it confronts a massive military apparatus in the United States that has occupied every continent and continues to occupy every continent in a military sense, and is in readiness at any moment to deploy George Kennan's notion of encirclement and control and so on, as thought of in the immediate aftermath of the war and the emergence of the Iron Curtain, so-called the uh, Cold War, as a means of entrapping foes so that their supply lines of energy are disabled. Well, the US has that set up to destroy China at any given moment, given China's lack of many natural resources for a military enterprise. It has other natural resources that are valuable, some of which are military, but most of which are used for other things and are not essential to things like keeping an army moving. So uh, I think we're in this third phase of a refi- or, uh, uh, fourth phase of a refinement of imperialism through China and the big question is whether it'll work given that um, whilst the model is loose and credible like the US one was it has this monumental opposition in the force of the different commands that the US has the most recent being AFRICOM but long-standing ones since the war, really everywhere else. Now, of course, that may change if the madman wins the election and he really does displace imperialist internationalism with a return to a certain kind of isolationism. Things may change. This could open up a real opportunity for the Chinese. But how much damage Trump could do to the project in the space of four years internationally, I really doubt. He can devastate the working class domestically, but I don't think he can get around the military-industrial complex beyond the United States. Long
1: I rant. mean, one of the big right-wing conspiracy theories that is promulgated by Trump and his many online influencers and acolytes, of course, is of the deep state, right? And the deep state is a target sort of that The Trump and MAGA movement wants to take down, and so that itself is very curious as related to, say, for example, post-war critical sociology coming from folks like C. Wright Mills on the power elite. It seems like there's now a right-wing version of power elite theory that's operative, right, within very reactionary, you know, proto-fascist or openly fascist.
0: Remember, these people don't have any ideas; they steal them from the left. The same thing with mistrusting the mainstream media. Our argument. Their embrace of it more effectively. The same thing with the deep state. Our argument, they embrace it. They're right. Good luck, dudes. You're not going to win. And they're not going to win, not in terms of bureaucrats who care about social security or health care. They're not going to win in terms of all the big corporations that actually fund the Republican Party and that rely on U.S. imperialism. So there is a deep state, it's true, and it's embedded, and it's you, you bastards. Yes. So, Prof, I, I wanted to ask you one more question, if I could, and then sure. turn it over to you to add to or subtract from the things we've discussed in any direction you wish. My question is, how do you find things out?
1: <laughs> um I feel kind of embarrassed, you know, saying this, but a combination of academic journals, but also following a lot of academic influencers, so to speak, on social media platforms. I mean, there's the typical news sources that I'll check out. I'll look at sort of the mainstream lines of The New York Times. I'll look at some of the left media circuits of the Jacobin and others. Um, I'll then also be, say, on Twitter or Facebook, following many of my friends, most of which are academics or activists of one kind or another. And they're constantly posting or sharing information, um, which sometimes becomes the first point of contact I have for kind of what's going on or what someone is saying or arguing. Um, So it's, I guess, a combination of uh, traditional information gathering and then new kind of, you know, social media algorithmic curation uh, of sorts. Um, I I don't sort of uh, rely on one or the other, um, but sort of do both. Uh, And then, of course, in conjunction with trying to to read the books, uh, and you can see those behind me, and I sometimes joke that that's wallpaper because I certainly haven't read all of those from front to back.
0: (laughs) No, I, I appreciate that, but when you've got, say, a research topic you've selected because of the academic influences that you mentioned.
1: How do you find shit out? Oh, oh, so, I mean, in terms of like a a method for trying to understand organizations and institutions related to the geopolitical economy of capitalism or empire, I kind of go to the, the source. I go to the state department. I go to arms corporations. I go to, um, CIA's website. I go. I go to. Um, it's good, you know, isn't it? It tells you lots yeah.
0: of things.
1: Yeah, and and that's why again I think that what we do is just categorically different when we're talking about power structures or power relations, um, is from what these sort of you know hacks and conspiracy theorists on the far right are up to. Because it's certainly there are interests, there are organizations with mandates and goals and functions. They pursue objectives. They use various means and techniques to achieve them. They act upon the social. They intervene in the social. They try to shape and reshape the social for various ends. But some of this may, of course, be decided behind closed doors, out of sight, out of mind. But a lot of this is very public. And we can learn a lot um, about power in the world by studying institutions and organizations and the decisions and choices they make as expressed within their policy frameworks um, that then become kind of guiding principles for their practices. I go to Google's website. I go to Walt Disney to see what Walt Disney's saying about equity, diversity, inclusivity, and sustainability. And, you know, and, and it's not saying that like a corporate annual report is like the starting point and end point for research, but it is a very, very significant source of information that we can then analyze and interpret based upon the concepts that we are choosing to utilize in our projects. Does that, does that, does that seem sensible, Toby? Yes.
0: No, thank you. I think that's very clear and uh, financial journalism, I guess would be another source. If you think of credible uh, sources in the English language, uh, not the wall street journals editorial pages, but some of the wall street journals, actual investigative journalism is good, but especially the financial times, is really terrific yes. and the economist uh, as to british examples where you know these guys are fans of capitalism and they're not fans of unions but they hate racism they hate sexism they hate pollution they don't like corruption they're pro democracy they have a number of things going on yes. right that are valuable and they want tr- what they think of as transparency Uh, albeit in the name of the renewal of their insidious capitalism. Now, thank you very much, Prof. That's great.
1: And now I'd like to read the business press, Toby. I mean, I think we also need to encourage our students to read the business press. If they want to understand capitalism, either go to the sources, whether they be the state apparatuses or agencies charged with facilitating legitimizing accumulation on behalf of capital or sectors or firms through their policy actions and choices to the companies and their annual reports and especially the business press as you say i mean just even like it's just so key and i think you know instead of we can derive our concepts of capitalism and we can theorize capitalism through those credible sources and that sort of also compels and motivates us to refine and constantly be refining how we understand the world based upon those material sources right um Instead of just starting with a th- inventing a theory, like let's let's start with what is and maybe draw from there and then go back and forth a bit, right, and more of a dialectical relationship. But does that make me a positivist? Does that make us positivists then for reading a business? <laughs> like...
0: No, not at all, not at all. I think it's talking about the way in which there are theories embedded in the norms of reportage and specifically financial reportage, but there are also material facts that are worth working with and that, when added to by social theoretical composites and commitments can be useful. Are there things we haven't discussed that you would like to mention or is there anything you'd like to add to or subtract from what we've described?
1: Well, I'm curious to know a little bit more about your thoughts on generative AI, the Chat GPTs and the Dalis and what this means for culture and creativity and labour. Uh, Moving forward, I mean, we saw in the recent strikes in Hollywood uh, some of this being about the the uses and abuses of generative AI by the studios, either to simulate, you know, actors or their likenesses and dispossess them of any uh, rights to their own image, (laughs) and then also the the writers being very, very uh, concerned that studios will basically use these AI systems to write scripts and put them out of work. So I'm just thinking through these questions more as of late, you know, the automation of creativity, of culture, um, what that means for the industry, what that means for labor. And what are the countervailing forces in society that might try to put the brakes on a bit? And if those brakes are even possible to press down at
0: this stage. Well, I, I think to answer as quickly as I can, in terms of Hollywood unions, because they took over the management of things like retirement and healthcare. On behalf of the studios, they are deeply encrusted in the motion picture industry, as broadly described, the screen industries. It's not worth it for capital to try to bust those unions. They'll fight with them over important details, over secondary accumulation, but they don't want to bust them because there's a union bureaucracy that keeps workers alive, that the studios don't want to have to run and never have wanted to run since the Second World War. So I think that's why you get these glimmers of hope in the U.S. Union movement, in the fields of entertainment, particularly Hollywood and also sports. When it comes to the broader question of artificial intelligence, I had an interesting conversation earlier today in a podcast with Joran Berlin, but I've talked to other people about this a little bit in other episodes. And the way it is playing out for me is in one sense, entirely expected and historically ordinary, which is a crazed dynamic that oscillates between this is the beginning of everything. It's wonderful. It's disruptive. It's revolutionary. And it's going to make our lives better versus oh, good grief. This is the end of life as we know it. Our children and grandchildren won't have jobs. It's a further, you know, stake in the heart of the educated middle class, the cognitariat is going to become the precariat, good grief, right? And those of us who are interested in the history of communications technologies will realize, ho-hum, we've heard all this before. It goes back 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. Every time there is some sort of innovation, be it print technology, or the transistor radio, this is both the liberation and the opportunity for all, or the nightmarish conquest of independence and freedom and good ideas. So that, I think, encourages people who know that history to be sceptical of a fundamental transformation. What I think is worth watching, and this gets back to the issue of the sovereign state and its sticky indexicality to which you referred earlier, in terms of those clashes of corporate interests and class interests that I adumbrated during our conversation, namely traditional intellectual property holders, copyright capitalists, like the studios, versus Nuance, the software people, and the gatherers of information via surveillance like Google and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. So I think the fact that they're briefly almost allied in a desire to make sure there are no other entrants to their pissy world of their artificial intelligence and what it might do both to the software and the hardware that they're developing, but also to the texts, the content that they own, historically, and are continuing to develop. I think that that alliance will continue, we will see more regulation, regulation in the interests of capital. And that regulation, when it comes to things like the interests of the LA working class, because of the historic strength and the embeddedness of unions, will not be entirely disabling. But that doesn't mean anything for the huge part of the Hollywood working class that is in Canada uh, and other countries, but most spectacularly Canada, it doesn't mean anything for the people who are ancillary to the key labour unions, so the people who are doing carpentry, who are drivers, who are caterers, who I think are going to be increasingly vulnerable, And it doesn't do anything for the discourse of national cinema, for example, or national television that is meant to be a counter to Hollywood, whether that is in Australia or Italy. When it comes to the core issues of the impact of artificial intelligence... I suspect its biggest impact will be in manufacturing because of the diminished need for waged proletarian labour, which is something that has already been felt in things like the car industry for some time. Robotic labour displacing low-wage human labour because it can be amortised quicker. And when it comes to some somewhat banal, as in low-paid elements of textual labour. I think the implications are bad. There will still be, guess what, high-priced surgeons and attorneys, but attorneys' clerks and surgeons' helpers, not so good a story. So I think we're going to see, you know, the less... Endowed with cultural capital aspects of the cognitariat, really having a bad time, and those with more control over the means of production, like surgeons and uh, high priced barristers and solicitors in the Anglo iteration, basically letting this pass them by. The sorts of hysteria we're seeing in academia at the moment oh, good grief, all these scientific proofs are lies. And worse, our students, they're not only not reading our important books and articles that we try to flood them with, but they're not even writing anything. That sort of anxiety that people understandably have, I think, could be gotten around. And I think it's not a new anxiety. It's been almost 40 years since I encountered the trade in essays in universities and the the mad notion of there being a thing called plagiarism and the mad notion that you can prove it, which to my mind has cheapened academic labor for a very long time, will continue, will be further energized until someone who is a well healed student backed by whatever free thinking corporate entity goes to the Supreme Court in the United States and says, there's no such thing as plagiarism. That would be a disruption, wouldn't it? Now that would be a disruption. Well, prof, uh, I need to call a close to this because even the cats fallen asleep and left me in peace. And
1: I, I have that's my cue to leave you in peace. too.
0: <laughs> no, not at all. I've, uh, I've spoken much too much. But I want to thank you very much, Professor Tanner, for your incredibly generous time spent with us and also for your,
1: your brilliant work. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to chat today, Toby.